Welcome to Church Burt's Hand. The good, the bad, and the ugly about church, religion, and spirituality with a dash of recovery thrown in. If you've ever had questions about the church, maybe a bit jaded in your attitude towards religion, well, you've come to the right place. Our host, he was an honors philosophy student, ordained a Presbyterian minister, planted three churches, taught at a prestigious university, but now, now he's just an aging curmudgeon who never quits asking the question why. The host of Church Hurts and Dr. John Bash. It was one of those moments in life recorded in my brain in full color and stereo sound, even though there wasn't much color and there wasn't much sound. It was November in Southern Maryland where the grayness and chill of winter were overtaking the charm of autumn. My candidating sermon had been given on that Sunday morning in a middle school cafeteria in front of 40 people, including children and bugs, and I was asked to leave as they discussed whether or not to extend an invitation to me to become the organizing pastor of this Presbyterian church plant. My eight-month pregnant wife was at home in Florida awaiting the verdict. This decision would dramatically change our life. I methodically walked the parking lot outside, wondering how long the meeting would last and rather curious about the only other human outside at the moment. This man was buried under the hood of an aging automobile, which must have been enjoying the cold about as much as I was. Knowing as little about cars as I do, I was wise enough not to go over and offer help with my nervous, shaking hands. Imagine my surprise when he unfurled himself from under the car hood and I spotted the Roman clerical collar as this man pleasantly introduced himself. His church was a church plant, too, and was meeting in the school gymnasium, and he very quickly extracted from me the situation I was in. Without hesitation, he closed the hood and insisted on accompanying me in these tense waiting moments, assuring me of his prayers and best wishes when I was called back in. I received the invitation from that church. Father Paul and I became anchors of sorts in the interfaith council in that county. More importantly, he became a friend. Father Paul is educated beyond impressive, a significant leader in the covenant community movement, currently serves as the Monsignor at St. Stephen's Martyr Catholic Church in Foggy Bottom, Washington, D.C., six blocks away from the White House. Welcome to Church Hurts and Father Paul. Thank you, John. There you go. <laughs> it's great to have you. Father Paul, the premise of this show is that church hurts, but that it doesn't have to drive us away. And most of our guests have been from the Protestant tradition. So tell me about the pain you've seen in your lifetime from a Roman Catholic perspective. Can you admit that church hurts too? When I decided to become a priest, I could not imagine the amount of corruption that is proven to be true in the Catholic Church. I used to think of bishops as sort of a repositories of wisdom in touch with reality. And now we have bankrupt dioceses, 
hundreds, perhaps thousands of abused children. The parish priests like myself are angry that so many bishops betrayed Jesus Christ and just were basically organizational men following policies rather than their conscience, betraying the gospel in Christ. It is a true shock to the parish priests and a scandal to everybody. And, and then you add financial shenanigans, apparently, at the Vatican. It's a pretty sorry mess. It, was there a time when you noticed a change in how people looked at you in your clerical color? where it went from maybe respect, awe, confusion, to maybe you're one of those bad guys? No, I really haven't noticed that. What I do notice is uh, the city is a secular environment. So it's very different from the country you and I were pastors in, where it was a warmer, more religious environment. I've noticed that, but people pretty much treat me the same. I like saying Foggy Bottom because I think I'm reading a spy novel. That's really the only thing well, I know the about. The Department is and the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund and a whole bunch of K Street lobbyists. So it's an interesting area. It really seems like you're really going in. Talk about a place that needs God. Um, foggy Bottom, Washington, D.C., right? Right. Well, we try to bring some light into the fog. It doesn't always work. Tell me what your call to the ministry was like. Somehow it seems that it must be different or more intense than your Protestant fellows in light of the demands of the priesthood. Was it? I started thinking about, thinking about becoming a priest in the fourth grade. Hmm. And then my father wanted me to be an engineer because the Russians sent up Sputnik and the country needed engineers. But and I was good in math, but I was very influenced by these dynamite young priest who taught in my high school, and I decided to become a priest in my junior year of high school, and then I entered after I graduated high school. So I was kind of young, and it was a 10-year journey to the priesthood, and I would choose it all over again. Did it really come out of genuine faith, or did it come from being kind of part of the Catholic family where one of the kids should be a priest? No, they were not keen on my becoming a priest, uh, but they accepted it. So it wasn't like, oh good, our son's entering the seminary. It was like, well, we hoped he became, would have become an engineer. But So uh, it was pretty much my decision. And, and they respected my decision. I have to say that. My parents say, whatever you decide, Paul, it's fine by us. I talked about Calvert County. I don't think I mentioned it by name. In the intro where we met, you know, at that time, a uh, relatively rural county, um, now probably more suburban D.C. in a way, but we both pastored churches which grew larger than most of the other churches in the area, but in a, a time when church attendance in the country was declining, you were doing something different, and you talked about it as a covenant community, and you were passionate about it. What were you saying different? Because there's a sense it felt like you were saying, yeah, the church has been missing some stuff, the covenant community can help us. Well, covenant means community. And uh, of course, in America, it's all about individualism. And so I wanted to say, our goal is to become a, a community. And what's important to us is hospitality, spirituality, 
and stewardship. And stewardship, I meant everybody has gifts for the upbuilding of the body of Christ, for making this world better. You take your gift, whatever you've received from God, add time to it, and that becomes your ministry in the church or in the world. And, uh, and, we, and then we would be supported by faith. I had, didn't even have the empty field yet, but I said, no bingo, no gambling, no grimacry, no raffles. I would rather be in a tent fought with the honest sacrifices of people than in some cathedral built on bingo. <laughs> Tell me a, a good story uh, that you remember from that time, because you had lots of them. There were some real changed lives in your parish. I'll tell you a story that changed my life in my first assignment, which was in the inner city of Washington, D.C. in the late 60s. It was it was chaotic. And uh, one weekend, we had 34 broken windows, all kinds of uh, vandalism. And we said, we, we've got to reach these kids in this neighborhood or, or just become a, a kind of a self-protecting island. So I announced without any money, we were going to have a retreat in the country. All the kids could come, the neighborhood. It was the strangest thing I ever did because I didn't have any money to do it. And we weren't charging for it. And it just happened. People just came forward. The bus company volunteered a bus. It was incredible. We got this wonderful place on the river in Calvert County. And uh, we had a nice talk that weekend, had dinner. We all went to bed. But I didn't realize. At three o'clock in the morning, a riot broke out. I mean, they were having fights with heads of lettuce, throwing hamburgers at one another, <laughs> breaking screens, flooding bathrooms, jumping into the woman's uh, dorm. And we were so disheartened after all of that. And we were ready to leave. And one man, I'll never forget him, Bob Carson, God may rest in peace, he said, let's separate the boys and girls and talk to them and see what we can do. And we, we went into that room and I looked at these boys and they, they had seen everything. They had been balled out by everybody. They had seen gun violence and police and drugs and everything else. And they looked as hard as stone. And I, I looked at those people and then I said one of the most intelligent things I ever said. I said, go ahead, Bob. It really, it really surprised him. He said, I had a master's in theology, but I had no idea what to say. And this is what he said. It changed my life. He said, you boys did a lot of things last night. You destroyed food that was given us by poor people. You vandalized this building that a faith community allowed us to use. You upset the women. You upset the girls. You did a lot of things. You flooded the bathrooms. There's one thing you didn't do, and there's one thing you can't do. That got their attention. He said, you can't make me stop loving you. No matter what you do, I will be there. If you need me, you can count on me. I care about you. Ah, the masks dropped. They begged to stay. They helped clean up. We had no problems after that. And that's the first time in my life that I understood the meaning of the gospel and what God's love is like. It changed my life. Mm -hmm. I, <clears throat> the, 
I so get that. I, I struggle sometimes even with my adult children. And, you know, there's things I want to get through. It's like I did such a bad job. Oh, I didn't get this through to them. And as a father, I'm like, how can I teach them this? And, and the more I talk to people about it, the more my message is to be, I love you. Right. Man, I don't want it to be that. I want them to get all this other stuff. But I have to soften and say, you know what? I love you no matter what. And I've been reflecting a lot about diversity recently, like the whole world, I think, has been. But I've been I've really been trying to figure out in my own head what's going on. And, and I'm not sure I'm, where I'm going to land in my thinking on this, because like everything in our culture, people seem to be dividing into two sides. But Christians seem to be more mimicking the culture on this issue of diversity than they are speaking into it. And I don't think we should be trying so hard to be diverse near as much as we should be focusing on being one. The emphasis is that we are to be one um, in Christ, I think. Now, am I missing it, or how do you see it? Because you worked in diverse communities then. Right now, you're, your church is quite diverse. How do you see it? Well, diversity is one of the blessings of, of my church that continues to be diverse. I mean, there's every race and nationality. I, I feel like a, a pastor of the United Nations. I love it. It's kind of always been that way. When I went to the inner city, I might be like the only white person in an African-American congregation, and I was totally accepted. Uh, I remember once a man asked me, he was a police officer. He said, so-and-so, is he, is he white, white or black? And I, I didn't know. And this is a person I saw all the time. And he asked me another name, then another name. And it became clear that I was more focused on personality than color. And uh, whatever the test was with him, I guess I passed it. But you know what I mean when I say that our emphasis really ought to be more about unity as Christians. There's unity in Christ. We can bicker, and you and I have. I mean, we've gone into the Council of Trent, and, and you rolled your eyes at me thinking, uh, say, when are you going to get out of the 16th century? I don't know if you remember that line. Um, and so we've talked about those theological details. But apart from that, I'm just saying in general, as Christians, I feel like even in the Roman Catholic Church, the price that you pay, but you try to emphasize the oneness in Christ, the, apart from language and nation and color and all that stuff. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going to get in this thinking, but I think you're ahead of me somehow. Well, you, you need a more. actually been diverse uh, mm -hmm. in, in every way uh, that I can think of. And so... It's, it's not so much an issue uh, we're economically diverse, racially diverse, nationality diverse, sexually diverse. Just the reality of, of uh, an inclusive church. Let, let me risk getting a little too personal with you here. People will laugh at this, but when I felt called to the ministry as a teenager, a few years after, it sounds like uh, you figured it out, I seriously struggled with the question of celibacy. I read what the Apostle Paul said about it, and I realized it had to be taken seriously. I prayed about it. I studied some more, and then I listened, and God laughed and told me to take a pass. 
Fortunately, Presbyterians don't require celibacy, but you're a normal, healthy man. Uh, talk about church hurts. I mean, how hard has that been? Can you tell me a story about that? Sometimes it's really pushed me to the brink because in all my training in the seminary is, is really like a monastery. Uh, they, they would talk a little bit about celibacy, not a whole lot. What they didn't say is, you're going to get out there, there are wonderful people you're going to be serving with, and guess what? You're going to fall in love. And I did. And, and to know, you know, I could be happy my whole life with this woman. She's just great. We, we click. It's mutual. And to say, no, I'm, I'm going to stay with my vows. There have been a few times in my priesthood few times that that's really been a challenge you're allowed to admit that you fell in love and it was a struggle ha huh. well it's true it is it is it's just simply true nobody has to give me permission i mean that's been the reality of my life and it has been a struggle at times ironically too some people don't get they say you know how can a priest help me with my marriage you know, when they don't get it. And in fact, you really not only help people with it, but um, you were a, an official marriage encounter guy. Tell me about that. That changed my life. When I started marriage encounter, I was kind of an institutional stick. I mean, just <laughs> starchy and, and uh, formal. And marriage encounter revolutionized my life. I, I became much more of a human being. I'm glad that happened early in my priesthood. What can I say? I would say that in our society, people have lots of difficulties with their self-image. Uh, am I good? Am I lovable? Am I gifted? Uh, am I adequate? Uh, and marriage encounter was so helpful in that regard so that I would say that finally, at the age of 34, I had a self-image capable of sustaining an adult life. But I've buried people, 70s and their 80s, who never accepted and appreciated themselves and were grateful for the person who they were. And that's where we are meant to get in life. Isn't acceptance such a big word? Yes, and the hardest person to accept is ourselves. And the hardest person to forgive is ourselves because people have all kinds of mistakes in their life and things they would have changed, things they're embarrassed by, things they don't want you to know. And the reason they can't let it go and don't even allow God to forgive them is because they cannot forgive themselves. I once heard a confession. This woman came in and she confessed some pretty bad stuff. And, and I could feel the anxiety in her voice. And I said, are you willing to forgive yourself and let it go so God can forgive you? She said, no, I could never forgive myself. So then I did something that I hadn't done before in my priesthood. I said, well, I can't give you absolution. Go out, think about it. When you're willing to forgive yourself, then you'll allow God to forgive you. Then come back to confession. Wow. What a relief when she came back a week later and said, now I'm willing to forgive myself. It was a, really a great confession. That's amazing. I, I always take that confessional 
have always taken into my work and say what applies to the confessional for the priest applies to me. And it's surprising how many people really would want to come in and confess. But I thought I'd really be bad at doing it in kind of my stereotype of the Roman Catholic format, but I because I, I'd want to interact more. But the one thing I came up with was this, when people would end up confessing something like for the first time in their life, something, you know, just really embarrassing or really horrifying, you know, because we don't have that tradition that you have of doing it regularly, they finally admit something. And the most useful phrase I came up with to, in a sense, break the tension of the huge wondering if they're going to get condemnation is I would say, I think God is shocked. And they'd look at me, and it would just cut through to them to realize, oh, it's human. I'm not so unique. You know, that we have a forgiving father, that he's not surprised by our stuff, is he? I think why people continue to come to confessions, although not in as great a number, is because it can be really healing to mm. hear another person say, you are forgiven. You bet. Leave this confessional like it never happened. And I tell people that all the time. So powerful. So powerful. we got to wrap up in a few minutes. But how would you say that ministry um, has changed from the early days till now? Could you maybe give us a, a story that might illustrate that, that might give us an idea? How are you, how are you, even how are you different now than you were then? Well, I mean, I've studied in the psychiatry department. I've done business management. I've been a process consultant. I mean, I, I my life is a continual uh, growth, and it still is. Last year, I became a, a, a master gardener in the District of Columbia. It wasn't like I was ordained and there I was. No, that was the beginning of a long journey in which I have grown as a person. And some of the things that have happened to me have totally transformed me, like the story I showed earlier, or in my second assignment, this woman came in, and I knew her well, because we had hospitality after Mass, and so we talked, and, and she came in and she said, you don't know it, but I used to be a prostitute, and when things get really bad in my life and I can't pay my bills, I will turn to it. My car broke down, my whole engine has to be rebuilt. Didn't have the money for it, so I prostituted myself, and and uh, now I, I've got this appointment with a guy to get the last hundred dollars. And I thought the night before, this lady came to the rectory in the evening, like when it was already dark, and I was tired. And said, she said, rang the bell, and she gave me this envelope and said, "Here, this is for you." I didn't even open it; I just put it on my dresser. And then I'm talking to this lady in my office. I said, I wonder what's in that envelope. I went up to my room, got the envelope. It was the money she needed. I said, tell the guy to watch television. And it just struck me, the money was never mine. That lady who gave it to me might have thought she was giving me a gift, but that was part of God's plan so, so that when this woman reached out to the church for help, it would be sitting, waiting for her. Things like that just can transform your whole vision of life and God's providence. 
That's just good stuff. Father Paul, I so appreciate you being here. Uh, we could we could just talk for hours and and I'm going to have you back for sure, but I'm I'm glad those of you um on the radio and who listen to this on the podcast. I'm glad you got to meet Father Paul. But before we go, I want to tell you another story about him. <laughs> 7 years after our first meeting, we now are the pastors of two of the largest churches in the county with wonderful new buildings, thriving programs, and unlimited futures. I found myself at the wrong end of a political dispute in the church, and I decided to move on without any idea where moving on would be or what it would mean. It's one of the most painful decisions in my life with reverberating consequences for many families. Church hurts. Untold sleepless nights watching the first Gulf War were accompanied by prayerful days and lonely thoughts. The phone rang. Is it time for muscles? Queried the cheery voice of Father Paul. Over the years, we both looked forward to our escapes to a small seafood restaurant on the Chesapeake Bay where we would talk about life, chuckling at the curious looks we often received from people wondering what the Presbyterian pastor and Catholic priest were doing hanging out together. Our menu selection was always the same, a big bowl of mussels marinara. I had it two ago, John, same restaurant. Yeah, and, and then there'd be the discarded shells that we would neatly stack inside of each other the way Father Paul had taught me to do. Upon seeing the nature of my spiritual duress and questionable future, Father Paul decided to make these lunches more regular. They became the rare moments of sunlight in a very dreary season of my life. One of those lunches included some words I'll never forget. Having assessed the situations which led to my departure from this church, I loved. Father Paul said simply, You can learn this, John. Pleading excuses from my personality, others' ill motivations, and any other argument I could find did no good. I have the same driving personality you have, he said. You can learn this. My excuses evaporated away, and I left Calvert County, Maryland for Orange County, California with a willing spirit and an open heart. Today, I have very few possessions. Life has done the house-cleaning thing appropriate for empty nesters. My library was taken away, and too much stuff thrown in the trash. A few suitcases, you know, fits the rest. One item remains in my sparse collection, which I treasure. It's a carving of Jesus' head chiseled out of olive wood, made in the Holy Land. And I bet you won't be surprised when I tell you it was hand-delivered to me years ago by a priest after a trip to Jerusalem whose name was Paul. Church hurts, you bet. And, and sometimes it does a great job at healing. It's worth a thought for Church Hurts and This is John Bash. Enjoy God today, won't you? Well, that was worth a thought for sure and brings us to the end of this edition of Church Hurts Hand. Next week, it's rumored we'll be walking on the edge of controversy, stirring the pot of denial, and finding movement of the divine. 
Our host, Dr. John Bash, is the shepherd with Standing Stone, a nonprofit ministry committed to caring for pastors and Christian leaders at risk of leaving the ministry prematurely. Come visit us at churchhurtsand.org. Tell us your story while you're there. Until then, remember, Church Hurts isn't the end of the story. Now go into the end and enjoy God today, won't you?